0: In conversations about climate change, generally speaking, we talk and think in the future tense. It's an immense crisis, but it's one ahead of us, albeit quickly arriving. We'll see immense, almost incomprehensible changes over the 21st century, the 22nd century, and centuries thereafter, but we can still do so much about it because it's in the future. Well, today's guest has a slightly different approach. She was recently introduced at the Frankfurt Book Fair as a post-climate change author. Her read on this issue is that it's not in the future, but very much here. In fact, we're decades into this crisis. And her bold assertion in a recently published book is that immigration towards the global north isn't just inevitable, but could also be, relatively speaking, advantageous for all involved. Of course, climate change will mean massive disruption to how we all live, but it need not be chaotic and lead to immense misery and poverty. Broadly speaking, it could work. What if people displaced from sub-Saharan Africa went to Greenland, Canada, Russia? what if Inverness became a global megacity filled with industrious young people making the goods and services we all need in the 21st century? It's a startling hypothesis, very interesting, very perhaps controversial, but it's a pragmatic take on a set of issues which we cannot afford to ignore. Guy Vince, welcome to Downstream.
1: Thank you. Lovely to be here.
0: We are talking about your book, Not so new. Um, 2022
1: came out. It's new. It came out in paperback just a few months ago. There you go. It's very good. Always relevant.
0: Yeah. No, no. Well, it's certainly relevant. I mean, it's going to be relevant in 50 years' time. Uh, And you can probably glean that from the title, Nomad Century, How to Survive the Climate Upheaval. Um, It has a pretty striking hypothesis in relation to one of the foundations of how we address climate change, which isn't overtly said in many places. We'll come to that. You can probably guess. It's about migration. Uh, but before we do, I want to get down to sort of nuts and bolts of climate change, because your background is science, and this is chock-a-block with facts, stats, anecdotes, hundreds. I was like, this you know, you could have a Twitter thread, which would just be so illuminating with all the stats. So let's start with sea levels, because people love to talk about rising sea levels and climate change. We're looking at about a metre this century, perhaps, aren't we?
1: Yeah, we don't know exactly um, how high it uh, could go, but the thing about sea levels is it varies in different places for different reasons. Um, for example, if you take the Florida Keys or um, the the Bay. What's happening there is you're getting these kind of like micro seas within the ocean. And so parts of those are rising relative to uh, the erosion on the land, much higher than other parts. Um, You're also getting uh, rivers uh, depositing through the deltas, but then washing away other places. Um, in other places, for example, if you look at Scotland, it's still rising after the uh, the loss of the glaciers, that weight that really pushed down um, the land there. So Scotland is rebounding faster than sea level rise Wow. whereas other places Bangladesh for example stands to lose around a third of its land mass so it depends where you are um, around the world it's not uniform um, and it varies you know geographically it can vary really remarkably within quite short distances and um, But it also depends on things like how much ice loss we're getting from the Greenland ice sheet, from the West Antarctic ice sheet, which at the moment are looking, uh, they are melting at a much faster rate than scientists have modelled for, which is pretty alarming. And there are uh, Earth system tipping points embedded within that. And what I mean by that is that you go... You go from one stable energetic state to a completely different stable energetic state. So you can't, um, you can't make a linear move from one to the other very easily. I, I compare it to like the straw that broke the donkey's back. So you keep adding that just that one straw, that one straw. And eventually the straw that you add takes the donkey's back from one stable state nice fix back to another one broken back and you can't withdraw your straw again and the donkey's back returns, right? You've gone to this other energetic state and, you know, it's not impossible that you can return, but it will take a phenomenal amount of energy. It's not just withdrawing a little bit. So we want to avoid those tipping points generally. And that's, you know, that's behind a lot of the um, attempts to keep below certain uh, temperature rises, uh, by the end of the century and to decarbonize faster and, and and all of that. It's all about keeping away from these tipping points, which are so dangerous to our civilization.
0: And on the sea levels point, so the atmospheric CO2 that we have right now, which is to say the concentrations of carbon dioxide and the air that we all breathe, is the highest it's been for about several million years. That's correct, isn't it? But it's certainly the highest in the history of the human species, so more absolutely. than 300,000 years. Absolutely,
1: absolutely, in, in the human species. We've, we've never experienced um, anything like this. Um, and the thing with these greenhouse gases is they're invisible, right? They're invisible to the wavelength of light that uh, visible light travels in, so we can't see it, but they're opaque to the wavelength of light that heat travels in. So, what happens is the sun's heat hits the Earth's surface, and most of it bounces back as heat in a different wavelength. Um, of light. It bounces back into outer space. But when we've got all those greenhouse gases, what they're doing is they're trapping that bounce back. They're trapping that energy. And it's this extra energy that's driving these um, really more violent storms, The obviously the heat waves that we see. Um, uh, and that drives uh, things like drought because it dries the Earth's surface and hot air holds more moisture. So you can get these um, much more powerful down uh, deluges, these flash floods. Um, and the melt, the melt that we see, which is uh, really accelerating.
0: But on the sea levels point, because I find this really interesting, most people say it's going to be one metre, it could be two metres, but that's obviously catastrophic. But to most people they think, okay, one or two metres, as a civilization, like you say, we can, we can deal with it. But the last time we had the kind of CO2 in the atmosphere that we're looking at now sea levels were much higher than one metre, like significantly, significantly higher. C- can you explain that disparity? Should we be preparing over, say, several centuries for sea level rises of 50 metres, 100 metres, or is that just, am I being silly?
1: Well, so uh, sea level rise, sea levels respond to the heat more slowly, right? So most of the sea level rise that we we have seen over the last century is actually been, you know, when you heat something up, it expands. And that's true for liquids. I mean, it's obviously true for gases. But it's it's true for liquids as well, um, because the molecules get more energetic, so they bounce. Um, I don't know how much detail you. Please. want. Please, <laughs> no,
0: our audience love this stuff. Our audience <laughs> love this stuff.
1: But but you know they 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 are much more energetic, so um, uh, that means that they take up more space. So so that has been the that's what started the um, uh, sea level rise that we saw initially um, around the world, um, and that. Uh, That has now um, been added to with the sea level rise from melting glaciers. So we're not talking about floating ice because obviously as that melts, um, it it doesn't do much um, in terms of changing the sea level rise because it's um, you know it's 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 not on land. But when you melt ice on land, so either mountain glaciers or um, glaciers on uh, Antarctica, Greenland, and some of these other really thick sheets, um, you're adding water. So of course, over time, that raises the sea level, and that can have a hugely dramatic effect, huge changes. And we have seen that historically. Well, prehistorically, um, at points in human experience, when we left the last ice age, the the types of warming that we saw after the last ice age were phenomenal. Like they were visible over um, over a century, quite quite uh, dramatically. But now we live in this very different world. So, um, you know, we have these large populations in fixed locations we're not we're not um small populations that easily move we're in fixed populations where our infrastructure our capital our investments our, our lives are based around these very vulnerable uh situations we live on coasts most of our major cities are on coasts or river deltas um you know for historic reasons because they were great for trade um so they're, they're much more vulnerable. And it's the sea level rise that you see year on year, and it is visible, you know, there are places in the UK, but there are certainly places that I've been to in Bangladesh, for example, in some of these small island states, where, you know, people will point in the water and say, that was my school, you know, that was the uh, town hall. They The sea level rise is noticeable. It's really noticeable. But what we're going to see, what we are baking in with some of these uh, rising temperatures are meters of sea level rise, which will occur, you know, we, we were talking about tipping points earlier, which will occur over the coming centuries. Now, we can deal with that kind of adaptation. It will involve completely moving cities and cities are moving, you know, the capital of Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, Jakarta is is moving because of this. So it's the sea level rise that you see on the coastline, but that's not the whole story because as the waters rise, you also get that incursion from underneath the the rise, um, uh, the fouling of fresh water as sea as the sea. Um, uh, gets into the water table, and that of course destroys agriculture because you get uh, you can't plant anything there because it's too salty um, it It means that drinking water supplies are at risk. It means that all sorts of infrastructure is compromised because you're getting this um, rise through the pavement or rise um, through fields of water, this flooding that that makes um, foundations unstable it that's almost as big a problem in fact, as um, as the rise uh, that you see along the coastline. And then you have to also remember that we have, you know, we have high tides, we have low tides um, and different times of the year, you know, monsoonal times and so on. The, the sea level anyway changes. And when you get a violent storm and the sea level is higher that is when you have this huge and really terrible effect. When that storm, instead of, um, instead of uh, just being um, held back by the barriers that we've put in place over centuries, it now can um, supersede those and it has that energy, that added energy, which can cause terrible damage to property, to livelihoods, um, and that, that can go on, it can go on for years.
0: So the 2015 uh, Paris COP, yeah, there was all this talk about, obviously, you know, we can't get two degrees warming. Maybe we will. Maybe we we'll, I mean, we obviously will. But there was talk of trying to keep it below 1.5 degrees warming, which is to say... Well,
1: that- not just talk. They agreed. Yeah. We have signed up yeah. to keep below two degrees mm. and do our best to keep below 1.5 by the end of the century above pre-industrial Yeah. Warming, which yeah. is
0: so, yeah. So average global temperatures, 1.5 degrees warmer than whatever, the, the early 19th yeah. century. And we, we can't get there. 1.5 to stay alive. And what I found really interesting in your book is you talk about average rises are already 1.2. But then, of course, last year, hottest year on record, I think it was 1.48, which shows how quickly things are moving. I mean, this is published in 2022. You have an amazing statistic actually. Um, and it was in relation to the number of people displaced by climate related events since the nineteen eighties and the increase to today. One of many great stats in there. But like I say, this is already this is already happening. This is not something in the future. When we use the baseline of thirty, forty, fifty years ago, it's quite clear what the trajectory is.
1: Yeah. I mean it's so someone I, I I did the um Opening author speech at the um, uh, Frankfurt Book Fair this year, which was like a huge, um, a huge privilege. I was it was really amazing um, to speak at this time on on this subject because it's so important. As you know, as we were approaching COP, but also as we're seeing this rise in nationalism across Europe. But I was introduced as. Uh, the first serious post-climate book. And I thought that's really interesting Mm. because we are in a different world. This Mm. is the post-climate change world now. And I don't think people have really understood that. In many people's minds, climate change is still something in the future. It's real now, right? People accept that it's real. It's definitely happening. But I don't think they realize that it has happened, mm. right? We're in that world now. There isn't a going back that's easy. We are now in that world. And yeah, so this really is a pragmatic book of solutions. It's, it's you know, this is where we are right now. Yes, climate migration is underway. Yes, it is inevitable to some extent. And, and that's something that we need to talk about. We really need to accept just as climate change is underway Mm. it is happening our world has changed now it's not a blip you know these headlines that come every every week last year certainly but but every month normally of oh you know record breaking temperature record breaking flood the hottest the driest the longest drought all all of these things this is the world we live in now Mm. it's not a going back
0: that's a great formulation actually. I hadn't thought about that. I have to say, this book for me is is one of the most powerful books I've read on climate change, along with David Wallace Wells' um right. Uninhabitable Earth from years ago. Um yeah. but what like you say, what's interesting is that with that book, like with your own, it was in no way it was both optimistic but deeply honest. You know, there wasn't any um there wasn't any, you know, copium. There wasn't, you know, like We can do this. It wasn't trying to generate some affect of optimism. There are big problems. We're probably not going to solve a lot of them. Lots of sufferings on its way. How do we mitigate it? And how do we create a better future in a century, frankly? So I I like that as a formulation. You know, I just had my first daughter was born last November. So I want to do a bit of a thought experiment with you. Because we can talk in abstraction about 1.5 degrees or or 2 degrees. She was born in late 2023. She turns 18 in 2041. Right. What sort of things might she expect on her eighteenth birthday? What might we expect to see with regards to these changing climactic patterns? Yeah.
1: So we are in a dramatically changing world. And the default, weirdly, very weirdly, the default for us as humans, part of our human nature, is to is to imagine what we have now has firstly always been like that. Um, and then extrapolate, extrapolate that forwards. Um, and I will say that this dramatic shift is not without precedent. If you look back to 1923, you know, what a different world, okay? So we'd come out of the First World War. The Second World War was 15 years away. We didn't know about the disruption that that was gonna cause. We didn't even have TV, right? It was a, it was that much of a different world. We still had an empire. We still had um, class divisions that were so rigid that it was very unusual for somebody to to imagine themselves in a different role. So if you think what has happened over that century, what has changed, the huge disruption, the huge migrations that occurred, the huge changes, countries that had never existed before... You know, and, and now, uh, now, now appear. Countries have disappeared. New countries have formed. All of that movement, which no one could have imagined, well, we're in a different position now, because we know scientists can model. Because of the reassurance and the reliability of physics, we know what the temperature is likely to be and what the uh, repercussions of that in terms of our weather systems and so on are likely to be. In terms of the politics, the geopolitics, that's still very much ours to make. And we shouldn't think that what we have now is the only model and anything beyond that is um, is crazy and we can't even imagine it because... History shows us that crazy happens all the time. Mm. So, you know, if we look at 2041, it's going to be hotter than today. That's an absolute given. Um, We'll be heading towards two degrees, almost certainly. And I say almost certainly because there are a few things that could happen. Um, We can talk about artificially cooling the planet, which is a possibility. The technological changes that we have in play at the moment uh, to decarbonize are, we have all of that. We have all of that and it's only getting better and the decarbonization is underway massively. But, you know, so so is our race to, um, to continue producing more energy beyond the decarbonized energy. So in terms of our emissions, I don't think that they will come down enough to avoid um, getting very close, if not passing two degrees um, by the early 2040s. And what that means in Britain, it means um, there will be the southeastern drought that we're already starting to see will become pr- more prolonged and more severe. Are we building reservoirs to cope with that? I'd say no. We may even start having our first desal plants. We may start um, increasing reservoir capacity um, and Things like recycling water within cities will become much more of a, a priority. Flooding will be much bigger. There will be disappearances already um, of parts of the kind of Norfolk, East Anglia uh, coastline. We're already seeing that. We're seeing huge amounts of erosion there and in other places. Uh, you know, will will the government have got a grip on that? Well, <laughs> I don't see much um, much sign of that now, but we still have you know, a good 18 years to make a difference, and we could, air pollution will be much, much improved. When you're doing the school run with your daughter in, well, in five years, there'll still be air pollution, probably, but in 10 years, so the age of my oldest is 10, um... I think it will it will have gone most even large trucks they will be increasingly electric so you know good and bad it's interesting
0: on the electric vehicles because the, the technology's here it already makes perfect sense within a market mechanism you know once you've actually bought the thing it's much cheaper to run um and electricity is price deflationary because the collapse in costs of wind and solar blah 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 more people will have personal solar in their home if they're fortunate enough to be able to buy it have a drive, you can park your car there, charge it, all sounds great. I mean, I live in Portsmouth, which is a very densely populated city. Lots of people don't have drives. And it's been very striking for me to see how little government is building the infrastructure. I I don't think a single charging point has been built in the last 12 months, not one. And that's in the context of the government. They've now obviously reneged on this, but this target of we won't sell petrol vehicles after 2030. So it's like on the one level, you've got this rhetoric and you've got the technology and you've got the demand, but it's almost like there's this paralysis to build infrastructure that we we take for granted, right? We take pylons for granted, we take roads for granted, we take sewer systems for granted, but it seems like government, states, particularly Britain, but across the West are incapable of doing that.
1: Yeah, well, some, some countries are doing a lot better than others, Norway, for example, is doing, is doing really well on the electric vehicle um, infrastructure. But generally, yes, I mean infrastructure building is it's an act of cooperation. it's an act of collaboration with future societies. It's a social enterprise, it's, you know in, entirely. It's an act of faith, and it's long term. So, when you come together to build new power stations, new energy storage facilities, new transit, you know, even a new tube line, whatever it is, you're putting a lot of money and faith in your society. Being prosperous into the future because that's that's what it brings. That's what infrastructure brings. It's um, it's a gift to future generations from today's generation. Um, and what we've had in the last, certainly in the last government, has been this chaotic. You know, one. <laughs> One leader after another, really just chasing their own popularity um, within their small cabal. We have not had that wider, even that wider chase of popularity among society. It's been so narrow and so focused that large infrastructure possibilities are are ruled out, essentially.
0: Do you think there's something that, that relates to our changed conception of time? So there's this great book. I'm sure you've read it, The Good Ancestor,
1: right? Yeah, um,
0: by Roman. We interviewed him on Navara FM last year, maybe the year before. Okay, and you know he says the optimal way of conceiving of time is to look at your grandparents through to your grandchildren, which is a time frame around 150 to 200 years, and that is how we should think of time and political action, how to change things, how to do things. Not a new cycle, but equally not a thousand years because you know that's not very um, tangible. And I found that really fascinating. And when I think about this country in particular, but also the United States, much much of Europe, much of Europe, not all of Europe, but much of Europe, it does feel like we now relate to time in a uniquely strange way. And I wonder where that's come from. You know, Patrick Deneen, who I don't agree with on many things, he's a conservative Catholic philosopher, basically talks about our relationship to time under liberalism and, and how it's completely warped our idea of time. I'm a socialist, but actually I have a really strong and profound respect for conservative ideas of time which is to say that not only are you in communion with people horizontally the people around you obviously i'd say that i'm a socialist but also with people in the past and the future and it it does feel that sense of communion. and the strangest thing is the people that most oppose that idea of solidarity and a shared experience over time over history are conservatives are the center right it's a very very weird moment you know they should be the ones Championing long-term thinking.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure how that. I yeah, I'm not sure how that falls generally in terms of party politics. Actually, I think I think we are in a very unique time, and I think there are there are different reasons for that. Partly, it's it's things like social media which which re- demand this kind of second to second reaction. So instead of getting your news in the morning, in your morning paper or on the wireless, you have to be reactionary every few seconds. And if you're doing that, it is impossible to think more long-term. But also you then get this feedback mechanism where you're chasing these shorter and shorter timelines of popularity. Mm. And so you just don't have that mental space to think long-term. And many of the crises that we are facing at the moment For example, the climate crisis, biodiversity crisis—they are long-term problems. They will take time to solve, but their solutions require long-term change. I mean, this is an enormous upheaval this century, and it 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 involves kind of these existential, planetary-scale threats disasters things that are quite often abstract and intangible to to your daily life and it requires making decisions a lot based on trust and the kind of politics we've had certainly in the last 10 years has eroded that trust the kind of uh the social media again this this polarization these um these silos that people find themselves in where they find they're defending kind of um, they're not able to take that perspective that holistic perspective that um, involves deep time but also involves um, a larger uh, community a a, a planetary community rather than just your little kind of like-minded buddies Mm. you know it requires a different framework, a, a structural framework, which in in a lot of ways we've we've lost, and it it's kind of a luxury to have that in many ways as well. You know, in in the past, a lot of the people that have had it have either been philosophers or they've been these rarefied um, priests or leaders. You know, Romans that wanted to uh, leave a legacy. You know, this this concept of legacy, this idea that we Take pride in what we leave to future generations mm. because it looks well on us and our family and our and, and, and we feel good about ourselves. That whole concept has been eroded somewhat, I think.
0: Yeah, quite remarkably, because it's been broadly and ever present for like recorded human history. Um this is interesting because you're saying that we don't have the the sort of the the framework, the mental conceptions to to address these problems because we don't think in the right terms. Is it possible then to think in the right terms, given the way that media ownership works, social media works? You know, it really struck me actually, particularly during the Corbyn leadership. Now, now he wasn't in the government, but it's the same phenomenon. Also with Trump, the media looked at every single day as almost like an episode of a Netflix series. You know, this is the this is the Corbyn being accosted at home episode where his mother-in-law speaks Spanish and we say he's crazy. This is the Ben Bradley episode where he libels Corbyn and Corbyn, you know. And, and and it was quite obvious to me that even the people working on Corbyn's team, they were viewing the media cycle through that prism because they had to. Oh, we won this episode, we lost that episode. The same with Trump. And it just seems so deeply injurious to addressing the kind of stuff you're talking about, where it's not even necessarily party-political. And so given how media ownership works, billionaires increasingly control the media, from Rupert Murdoch to to Jeff Bezos with the Washington Post, um, to Elon Musk owning Twitter. Given that, how can you be hopeful about us changing course, changing direction, having the kinds of mental conceptions we need, which we'll talk about in a minute in the book, Given that the very vehicles for that conversation are so opposed to what you'd want, ideally.
1: Yeah, I mean, we are in this. We are in this. Uh, you know, pretty horrific space in in so many ways, and you know, again. You can feel mired, you can feel that all of this is impossible, that we are, you know, we're battling these, these, uh, you know, very short news spans. I mean, if you, if you look at the news, it, is, it can be very parochial, it can be very soundbitey, um, and many people don't even look at the news. They're, they're receiving it from, you know, some TikToker, or it's very, very reactionary and very short term. Could that- be me
0: on TikTok. And I quite that- <laughs> like TikTok. Anyway, I think it's better than most of the stuff on TV.
1: But it is reactionary, Mm. right? No, no, because you will pick on. There isn't a sort of a a pool of people bringing oversight and judgment editorially to what is shown. It's an individual, and the danger with that. That's absolutely fine if you are as a viewer watching a variety of this and receiving a broad kind of overview. That would be actually ideal, maybe better than the other model but instead people tend to stick to these very very narrow viewpoints and they don't actually see they've got so many blinkers on they don't see the bigger picture mm. so it it can feel it can feel impossible but then again i would say take the different perspective have a look right we've come from 2023 we're going somewhere else we've come from sorry 1923 the huge changes that were made over that century i mean you know we were just talking about cars most of the united states roads were laid down in the 1950s Mm. right that's like that's within my my parents were alive Mm. in the 1950s that's within like their lifetime let alone my grandparents you know so so we can make those changes we can we the changes that will come can be unimaginable. Mm. We can't see them yet. We don't know what of they course. are. But what we have to do is put is put in place the mechanisms for those things to be possible. Mm.
0: But I think something so strange has happened, again, in Britain, that now you see people, they'll campaign against pylons going up near them. And you think, if you had your way 100 years ago, none of this would have happened. You know, We wouldn't have, like I say, sewage systems, water, but nothing, nothing would exist. And it does feel that we've come to sort, some sort of, maybe that'd be a catharsis and people realize it's completely idiotic, an idiotic way to run society. But the, the, the idea of building anything is just a, a faux pas. And actually also, by the way, this is on the green left as well. One of the words I hate the most that comes from greens is extractivism. Oh, you can't extract things. You can't mine anything. Well, we're going to need to mine something because we need to decarbonize energy systems and material comes from places. And it's this strange pathology to me that doing anything is somehow damaging the planet and that actually human action can't be a net positive. And and the sad thing is I do think that's actually come from sort of left wing and green circles over the last 30, 40 years and it's been a big mistake. I want to ask you about um, wet bulb temperatures. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> right. Because this is something well, people talk a, about that's all the time. A big,
1: that's a big swerve.
0: What does it mean? Wet bulb temperatures.
1: Yeah. So so heat is a killer. We know that it kills already. It kills uh, tens of thousands of people. When the the biggest killer is is. Uh, is uh, humidity plus heat, because, you know, we're mammals. So we need to maintain a certain body temperature. And we do that through evaporative cooling, through sweating. And as that sweat evaporates, it takes the heat energy from our bodies. But if there is too much moisture in the air, our sweat can't evaporate. And so we overheat. And so we measure this wet bulb temperature, how much humidity and heat there is, uh, using something really, really basic. It's called the wet bulb temperature, and it's it's basically a damp rag around the bulb of a thermometer. And when that rag doesn't uh, doesn't cool, doesn't the thermometer doesn't change temperature, we've reached um, the wet bulb temperature. Now there is this threshold of survivability the survivability limit um, which was thought to be around 35 degrees of a wet bulb temperature Um, and that had never been exceeded anywhere on earth until recently firstly in Oman and then in various other places around the world and that's the temperature at which a healthy young person who's not physically active will die within six hours now, there were two papers out about a year ago which pushed that wet bulb temperature down, that threshold of survivability limit down to somewhere between 25 and 28 degrees of a wet bulb temperature, um, which is very, very worrying. And actually, there have been, you know, if we look back on major deadly heat waves that we've experienced, so there was one in 2003 um, Um, In Europe, which killed um, around 30,000 people. There was one in 2010 in Russia that killed around 50,000 people. And in neither of those two heat waves did the wet bulb temperature exceed that um, 28 degrees. So it's very likely that that is the survivability limit. And that's extremely worrying because we exceed that quite frequently in many places. And it's one of the reasons, for example, that... um, Uh, labourers in places like Qatar die when they're outside you know and these are quite often climate migrants of course that have come from their own countries whether it's uh, Nepal or Bangladesh or wherever Um, to work there they're exposed you know they're healthy people they die quite quickly.
0: So the the humidity thing is critical right because obviously humans have lived in conditions of 40 plus you know for Obviously not for prolonged periods of time, but there are cities where they've been 40 plus, you know, 30, 40 years ago, whatever. But the humidity plus the heat creates a a sensation akin to 60, 70 degrees plus.
1: Yeah, it feels like a lot more. And and that heat is a killer. Um, Physiologically what happens under heat is quite grim, right? The cell membrane, your cell membranes start, um, start to disintegrate, decompose. You, you, you effectively boil, your cells start to boil. Um, they denature. You, you know, you are cooking as a person. Um so so you will die of you know, you will die of kidney failure or you will die of um a heart attack or or various other things. But 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 what is happening is this is this cooking of your of your body.
0: I mean my father's Iranian. So every summer when it's hot here in July or August, I'll go on, you know, various weather apps and I'll look at Basra, Baghdad, Abadan, Persian Gulf and for weeks on end 49 48 50 51 for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks it's
1: getting terrible there yeah
0: yeah and you just think
1: my god
0: what if when, when it gets to the mid 50s like humans will not be able to live here quite obviously
1: yeah. and that's these are very adapted places to heat because um they're culturally Adapted, so people, there are large awnings, uh, naturally in the buildings, there are different ventilation systems in the architecture. Um, People are indoors during the hottest periods of the day. Um, They tend to go out in the evenings or early mornings. Um, There's a lot of use of flowing water in the the architecture. So so they are adapted to, culturally adapted to hotter temperatures than the temperate north where we live here. but these are extreme conditions now that are happening, and across that actually that that area from Iran to Iraq to uh, you know Lebanon, Syria, we've um, we've also seen horrific drought, mm. prolonged, long term drought. So this incredible heat, drought, and there is moisture; it's in the air, right, causing that humidity, and that's that is a huge problem, and um, we. We're seeing instead of once in a, there was a paper out actually really recently in the last, in October or November, that was showing that since um, 2010, instead of, you know, once in a century um, drought and heat, we're now seeing it uh, regularly, you know, as often as once every five years or once every two years. And people can't recover from that. Mm. You know, instead of it being an unusual event that, you know, people can, can rally around and they have the resilience to deal with it when it's constant, when you have this chronic drought, it's really problematic. And it, it causes agricultural collapse, which pushes up food prices because, you know, cereal crops particularly, they are most um, sensitive to drought, more than to heat, more than to um, flooding. Drought is the real killer in terms of agricultural yields so when you get these chronic droughts you get um poor yields season after season and that just pushes food so food availability becomes much more limited and that pushes the prices up much higher so ordinary people can't afford bread or rice if it's a rice country um and that you know, and then they leave rural areas and they go into the cities where there's already conflict because there's just not enough to go around in the cities either. Mm. And that's where you get this civil unrest. It's where you get these, um, you know, I mean, it's not the only cause, but climate mm. change is a huge threat multiplier. You know, it adds to all sorts of other problems people are already facing, you know, whether it's conflict. And we see these patterns in conflict and we see these patterns in migration. Mm. There's a, there was a really cool paper out, actually, um, at the end of last year, which was looking at Mesoamerica, um, Central America, um, heat and drought patterns um, in the growing season, and how that relates to emigration patterns to the United States, and there is an absolute correlation. Like it's it's amazing. You know, when there's a when there's a drought in the growing season, you get this spike in um, in uh, migrants arriving at the border, and when the growing season has uh, and it's less frequent now. Um, a, a, you know, a better a better season with adequate precipitation, adequate rainfall, you get a reduction.
0: Latin America is really interesting because obviously you've got you've got the birth rates of a global North region. You've got quite low birth rates, but then you've got the urbanisation rates of a global South region. So it's like quite low birth rates but high rates of urbanisation. Like this is very unusual. So clearly. You know something unusual is catalysing it, and obviously climate change has a big role to play. And also in Iran, you know, there was a great article recently in the Financial Times about basically the collapse of saffron production.
1: Right. And um, I didn't read that. No,
0: oh, really fascinating. Of course, look, this is a luxury good; it's not bread or rice, but
1: it's very pretty though.
0: It's very yeah, it, it's delicious, you know. Um, but what was really interesting for me was um, this mix of rapid urbanisation climate change obviously d- d- depreciating living standards, a country subject to military uh, economic sanctions and I thought look this is there's a very real chance this country of 90 million people can become a failed state very real very real and I don't think European policymakers politicians have any idea how close we are to a country like Egypt or Iran 190 million people becoming a failed state. Tens of millions of refugees come to Europe. And we should be trying to stop that for obvious reasons. And it's almost like in the case of Iran, they're trying to accelerate it. And we don't need to talk, we're not here to talk about geopolitics or anything, but it was the confluence of those factors. And I just thought it's crazy that the same politicians who back sanctions on a country so dramatically impacted by climate change will be the ones who moan about them moving west, entering Europe.
1: Climate oh. is, is absolutely threaded through the whole of geopolitics and it always it always has been. you know when there have been terrible droughts, you have had big migrations. I mean this is how we're an animal, this is how animals respond. This is how plants respond, right You can actually see the migration of the tree line. It's moving north.
0: And let's move it. And we can we can measure this in terms of like every naught point one degrees of yeah. warming. Yeah, So, yeah, so yeah. give me some numbers on that. Cause it's fascinating. Oh
1: god! If you can remember, it's all in here. <laughs> I, I I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's visible. Like the greening of the Arctic is visible from space. It's it's really really noticeable. But we see so the most obvious ones, of course, are the uh, most mobile animals. So we see fish. Insects, butterflies, bees, locusts, mosquitoes, disease-carrying uh, ticks—all of that are moving north at quite a pace. Um, birds as well, uh, and uh, you know a lot of pollinator uh, species—they they're moving quite rapidly. But even the less mobile animals that are moving—in fact, a lot of the extinctions that we will see as a result of climate change are not actually due to the impacts of that climate change itself. It's due to the fact that the natural migration that could take place is being hindered in some way. And that's just gonna be the same for us, right? Because we could move out of harm's way. And if we're not, it's because we have imposed those limits, you know. So for animals um, and plants, it's, it's habitat loss, it's habitat incursion, you know, with roads and um, destruction for agriculture or mineral extraction or whatever it is. Um, preventing that migration to safety Mm. I mean, there are there are different examples where that's not true. You know, um, mountain species can't move any further upslope. You know, they, they have a limited place to go. Coral reefs, you know, we've passed the tipping points for coral reefs now. There is nowhere for them to go. And so, they're very
0: likely to basically disappear by 2050.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, many reefs. The, the year that we've had with the most phenomenal... Um, see surface temperatures recorded you know like not just record breaking but the gap you know between anything that's come before and now is is absolutely huge it, it it's caused the decimation the loss perhaps of caribbean coral reefs mm. those ecosystems can't you know they can cope with one bleaching but this kind of prolonged chronic year after year bleaching, they just don't come back. And we're seeing that in, you know, the Great Barrier Reef and, and various other places.
0: Well, she'll read on this politically, because uh, you're obviously very good on the science and the, and, and the the technical details and the facts and the figures. I, maybe peerless. It's very good in that respect. But what I found interesting in this book is that it's written, it's published in 2022. Clearly, you, I imagine you were writing and proofreading, etc. during COVID. Yeah. And it... It feels like it's inflected by a certain hope that we won't go back to before. Well, we can't go back. Look what COVID's shown to people, how how quickly things can change. In 2020, we have 3 billion animals die in Australia. Um, We have COVID. We have these extreme weather events last year. Are you surprised at how actually we have gone back? Have Have you been surprised by that since the book's been published, for instance, over the last several years? Actually, people can go back to a default, which is really dysfunctional and really bad really quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean, the default is the easiest because because it's known. So it's the easiest place for any of us to be. Change is hard. Change is confronting. So I'm slightly surprised by that. I think what I, if I'm surprised by anything, I'm surprised by our short memories. You know, COVID was a huge trauma. Even if you... We're not like massively affected. You know, you don't have long COVID or you didn't have um, personal friends and relations who died or, or any of the other horrific challenges. It was a huge kind of generational trauma that we all went through. You know, there were times when we thought, certainly I thought, you know, would my parents survive? You know, what if this, you know, before we had vaccines, what if we don't get a vaccine? You know, what if this kills my kids or you know, how, how will we be able to get through this? Um, and we seem to have, as a society, uh, rejected some of the most important lessons that we were taught during COVID, which were that the highest paid jobs are not the jobs of most value, right? Nobody was chasing around, where can I get a hedge fund manager? we wanted delivery drivers we wanted nurses we wanted care workers right some of the least well paid most appalling you know hard working jobs they were the most important jobs and we appreciated that in whatever way and so quickly i'm i'm surprised today that in the demands for better conditions from you know, junior doctors or nurses or whoever it is this week, train drivers, another really, really essential role, that they are—they have almost got defaulted back to um, their previous demands that, you know, we need more money because it's cost of living, blah, blah, blah. Not, you know, we showed you this was the most important job in society. You cannot live without us. This is a valuable job. The, we, we are doing a valuable job valuable work in society we are the most important linchpins that holds this whole artifice together you must value us like that to me is the strongest argument um and i'm surprised that we don't hear that a lot because that was a lesson that we were all that we were told so so strongly
0: the nursing one is incredible actually because i mean to be fair i think They've had a better pay settlement than certain parts of the of, of, of the labor market. Obviously, junior doctors are still on strike. Um, but the nurses one is crazy. You know, on average now, a nurse is graduating with about £50,000 worth of debt. Uh, the pay isn't particularly good. And like you say, they're so important. And this, again, really... Uh, comes home to me when my um, my daughter was born. You think these people are invested with so much power, importance, authority. literally life and
1: death decisions yeah. that they have to make. Yeah. and yet they are they are part they're in this you know systemic culture of decline yeah. of underinvestment of you know I you know what <laughs> part of me thinks what what will it take? We've just had a pandemic Quite. where people literally you know enormous parts of our society were visibly on the television dying every night and and yet you know a year on
0: what will it take because one of the people that bigs up the book is uh, kim stanley robinson science fiction writer and Ministry for the Future, his book.
1: I'm a huge fan of his. I mean, that was just, uh, I was blown away. I was so... Great
0: book. <laughs> well, he, he talks at the top of that book about basically the thing that changes this is is an extreme weather event in South Asia, mm. India. Millions of people die because we go beyond wet, wet bulb temperatures of, I think he says 35, but let's say it's 28. Millions of people die. They cook to death. And basically global civil society wakes up to the fact that climate change is here. I mean, you could that's one read on on covid-19 by the way we don't have to go down that rabbit hole so what will it take will it take something like that will it yeah, take millions well, of people dying before people say actually I we need to know. do something i don't
1: know i don't know and there are plenty of catastrophists that um you know green activists or or uh or wherever who come at this with we need a big disaster where everybody dies to show the world that we need to act and i absolutely don't go along that you know we don't we shouldn't have to need it obviously What I will say is we haven't had honesty from leaders. We haven't had, we're not awake. What I wanted to, this book was born out of huge amounts of frustration. I can see what is happening. And this perspective shifting, this this need to wake up and be honest about where we really are genuinely with climate breakdown the choices we genuinely have, because we do still have choices, we need to discuss them, right? We can't live within this this complete um, artificial, you know, screen, this world where we imagine that things are exactly the same, but we might have every now and again a, an extreme event or, um, you know, the, the world has is, is changed. It's not the same world as the 1980s. And yet we behave as if it were. We behave as if the climate was, as if um, uh, our production capabilities are the same, as if the economy was the same, as if uh, if the global political climate was the same. Mm. We're not in that world anymore. We're in a completely different world. We're in, and, and we need to wake up, we need honesty from the leaders about actually what is happening. The temperature is going up. We are going to face more extreme events. We need to do adaptation literally everywhere around the world. We're not doing it adequately anywhere around the world, particularly in tropical nations, which are becoming unlivable already and which will become more unlivable. Migration, immigration is a fact. It's not, you know, it's not a kind of um, something that you can... You can say uh, you can you can turn around and say we 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 won't have it or um, we're going to put a stop to it or come up with some ad- absolutely ludicrous idea like this whole Rwanda thing or the barge or whatever the latest nonsense is. Immigration is part of what it means to be human, but at the moment it is actually going to increase, and that is something that is a fact. We can't change that, even if we wanted to. So what are we going to do about it? How do we factor that in to our plans for the next century, for our infrastructure, for um, our housing provision, for our uh, medical health access, our school provision, our road capacity, you know, where we're going to put our industries, how we're going to develop over the next coming decades. It is a fact. We also have this massive demographic decline. You know, people are not having enough babies to support an aging population. You know, in Japan, adult nappies outsell infant ones. You know, incredible you
0: know, I hadn't heard about that until I read the book. Buy the book because there's hundreds of little things like that. I didn't know that. Crazy, but I right. mean, in, in
1: order to maintain today's you know a, a, a status quo in population, the average woman needs to have two point one infants, two point one babies. Right, the point one is because of you know maternal or infant death during. At that time. So places like South Korea are having something like 1.7 or 1.6.
0: Not even, right? You mean 0. Ed-
1: 0.7. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah. I mean it's it's absolutely minuscule. You know? yeah. It's it's a real but our economy is predicated on this uh contract, this social contract that the young working population looks after the aged the infirm, the um, the disabled population. That's exactly that is how our society works, right? But um, and and they don't live that long, and then they die, right? But what's happened is they are living much longer. Cancer isn't killing you; you stay alive with, um, uh, you know, with with a chronic condition. I mean, we also have this obesity epidemic, which means, and and various health problems attached to that, which mean people are living longer but incapacitated earlier, so they're not able to work as long. And we're having fewer and fewer babies to support this social contract. And we want the standard of living, right? It doesn't add up. It will not add up. And the only countries, you know, that are managing to make that population Dynamic work are doing it through immigration. I mean, there there are various nationalistic uh, uh, countries, you know, from Hungary to um, Turkey or whatever, that are trying to increase the population by uh, encouraging, you know, Maloney's, I think, also doing it in Italy now.
0: Even though she has no children, ironically.
1: Yeah, I think she's, I think she's, I might, oh no, be wrong she, has, on no that. she has
0: one, sorry. Gert Does Wilders she? has no children. She has, I think okay. she, she has one. And there's this, this phenomenon of like far right leaders who don't have children basically, and say so you must have children. As like, well, okay, you know,
1: you yeah. First. So so there are so you know you get a bonus if you have three kids yeah. or a second kid you get a better. Sorry,
0: she's not married. She does have one. So
1: child that yet. oh how disgraceful.
0: No, I know. Well, these are the, <laughs> no, but these are the people that she rallies against. Yeah, it's bizarre.
1: <laughs> I'm also not married, I should say, but but the um but the you know the, this has never ever ever worked ever. Anywhere. Is, is that true? You cannot... Yeah, it's true. Nobody has reversed a population decline through policy.
0: Mm, I, well, if you look at Hungary, its birth rate right now is... It's stagnated. So it's about 1.5, 1.6. It's, it's basically been the same for about 20 years, which is below replacement rate. But, like,
1: yeah.
0: I think Britain... Um, Britain is now 1.5, 1.6. HSBC had a report out recently saying that by the end of the 2030s, we'll be at 1%.
1: No, but but, they, so but we are that, mainta- it, 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 but that's through immigration. We are we are keeping our population through no, immigration, no, saying, not through saying,
0: fertility. They're saying the total fertility rate of this country would fall to one by the, end oh, right. of the 2030s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, And so in that context, well, 1.5 is quite good. If we could just stabilise at 1.5, so I, I do think there is an argument. No, say-
1: 1.5 is not good. If you want to, re- if you want to keep no, no. any alongside production. immigration,
0: then no, of course, yeah. But in the context of your total fertility rate going to 1, 1. 1.5, because obviously the, the policy target for people that talk in these terms is 2.1. And I think that's, that is probably unrealistic. But I think it, it, there clearly should be a political impetus to say, well, we know, we know this from polling. Actually, most people would like larger families. The, when people are polled on this, they would like two children. You know, cliche, but there we are. Um, The number of Americans who said that one was the ideal number of children, I say this as an only child, was 3%. Most Americans don't, you know, would ideally have more children than that. When people were polled on this, they would like more children. They can't have them for quite obvious reasons, economics, career, etc. And I'm not saying people should be compelled to have children. I'm not saying that in the slightest. Um, What I'm saying is that it it doesn't seem strange that politicians should say to parents, okay, there is a massive social upside for you to have more children because of the things you're saying, because of age population, etc. How can we help you? Better maternity care and leave, uh, better housing policy. Absolutely,
1: I think anybody who wants children, you know, um, should should uh, should have as much uh, social assistance as possible to have them. That they are they are providing a very important job for society. Parents do a really important job for society, but the uh, The fact of the matter is that, firstly, urbanisation and uh, women's education and health leads people to have fewer children for for a variety of reasons. So um, that population decline in terms of fertility seems fairly set. I mean, in terms of in terms of the hardships that parents are under, that. You know that's that's appalling, and it shouldn't it shouldn't occur. You know the number of parents, you know, visiting food banks, the um, the poor provision in uh, early years and childcare and all of that. That's it's a complete disgrace. We're not investing at all in um, in our uh, in the in the next generation. And we're not making it easy for people who do want children. It's it's a, it's a massive sacrifice. I mean, I know that as a mother, like it's you sacrifice a lot in order, you know, I mean, you make choices in life, of course. But you shouldn't have to sacrifice hugely in terms of um, finance and career in order to have children.
0: I mean, I find this all quite fascinating because you're right to say, I think this is, we probably agree on this. It's going to be impossible to have a policy prescription to get birth rates to point I agree with you there, but what's interesting, and we're only beginning to see the first glimpses of it, in advanced GDP, you know, high GDP advanced economies is the rise of religious fundamentalism and those people having high birth rates. Israel is a fantastic example. You know, the average liberal Jew in Israel has, I think, 1.5 kids. The average Haredim has seven or eight kids. And that's already changing the political complexion of Israel. I mean, you can see that with the far right governments they elect in 1945, 1948 rather, the founding of the state of Israel, 1% of Israelis was Harodim. I think by 2050, it's gonna be one in three. Now you might think, just Israel. In the united states it's the same with mormons or evangelicals much higher birth rates and there is this theory out there the religious shall inherit the earth that because amongst secular liberal minded people birth rates are much lower one or two kids and amongst religious fundamentalists they're much higher that actually over four five six generations we see a massive revival of religion um and i think that's I increasingly think that's quite likely, actually. I think maybe in like the 20- we're talking about long time, you know, the long now. I can foresee a world in the 23rd century where they look back at sort of secular liberal 20th, 21st centuries and think like, wow, what the hell were they thinking? You know, I think that's really plausible. When we think of all the the futurisms that are available to us, I think a reactionary, regressive, highly religious futurism is actually... Is is on the is on the you know, amongst the um, I
1: mean I can't I, you know, obviously I'm not Mystic Meg I can't look into the future <laughs> but um, I would say that religious fundamentalism is um, certainly it, it declines generally when you get uh, more multicultural more um, more immigration and more multicultural uh inclusivity in that immigration so second generation it's not always Mm. but generally that's what happens so um yes you know if you look in small villages in afghanistan if you look in these um little uh communities like the the mormons are, are are exceptional but but there are fundamental religious communities within America. America's a very, very weird place. I mean, it was it was founded by religious fundamentalists essentially True. that Europe couldn't bear anymore and <laughs> sin. But what's fasc- so it does have these really weird sects that persist um, there. But if you look at um, and, and and they of course they exist in other places as well in uh, the Middle East, in um, parts of Asia, but and, and in Europe. But generally, if you look at the um, if you look at cities, urban cities around the world, you have a reduction in um, fundamentalism and a reduction generally in religiosity mm. altogether. That may not always continue to be true, um, but you get more tolerance of other types of religion, other types of lifestyle, other, um, you know, everything from fashion to sexuality to, um, to you know, gender equality. All of that um, tends to, that, that sort of tolerance tends to increase and with that extremism, decline. I, th-
0: I think you're probably right, but we could have had the same conversation in the first century AD about Christianity. And I've, I'm i fascinated by the demographics around Christ- the growth of Christianity. And the frank reality is Christians for about two and a half centuries had much higher birth rates than pagan Romans. Um, and because of their perceived success, higher birth rates, they seem to fare much better during these two major plagues which afflict the Roman empire. Um, This is where the meme, the cultural meme of being able to heal the sick was actually a a major perception amongst pagan Romans when they were looking at Christians. So I think, look, a tiny sect managed to do that in in the context of climate change, major pandemics, geopolitical breakdown. This happened 2,000 years ago. Like, maybe it can happen again. I don't think it's likely, but maybe it can happen again. So who knows?
1: Well, there is, you know... One of the narratives of the far right is this replacement theory, right? That, um, that uh, Muslims are going to come from, brown Muslims are going to come from poor countries into your nice white country and replace them because they have loads and loads of babies. You know, over the century, we are going to see darker, you know, a darker population Um, of of, of, uh, northern populations. I don't think that we will see a massive rise in the birth rate. I don't think that we will see, you know, um, the types of... For for a start, the population is anyway declining. There's very few countries now that have uh, where it's normal for For mothers to have, you know, six to fifteen kids or whatever, it's very, 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 very few. I think about half the planet
0: is below two point one now,
1: right? Yeah. So, so so what we're talking about is a general population decline, and um, population generally across the globe is predicted. It depends on which model you look at, but you know, it could peak as early as the twenty fifties, and then it could decline by the end of the century to below what we're at at the moment, which is eight billion. So, population. Um, global population, which is a huge worry of certain sector of society, is actually something that I don't worry about. I, I worry much more about this demographic issue, of um, you know not getting that right, because we will be desperate for immigrants. We already are desperate for mm. immigrants, right? We don't have people to um, harvest our crops, to look after our elderly, to you know half the bars are closing because they can't get staff, right? And that that wasn't just a pandemic thing. That is an ongoing immigration issue. Um, we need immigrants uh, desperately. And what we're going to find is a competition, right, among among different countries for the, the immigrants they want. Mm.
0: Here's the stat from your book. And this is the meat of the book, Nomad Century, because climate change is going to create mass migrations. And A, we should be comfortable about it, but also C, as part of the solution to the aging issue. Quote, up to 1.5 billion people will have to leave their homes by 2050. That's very soon, 27 years. According to the International Organization for Migration. And a recent analysis by a different team of scientists pushes the figure up to 3 billion by 2070. So 1.5 billion by 2050, potentially. Up to 3 billion by 2070. I mean, I should, we should probably still be alive by 2070, maybe, but certainly 2050. Those 1.5 billion people, where can they go? Where should they go? So so
1: let me talk about those stats, first of all, because obviously we don't know. um, And they depend on lots of things. So the stats go, you know, 1.5 billion by 2050, perhaps um, as few as uh, a few hundred million by 2050, right? We don't know. It depends on lots of things. It depends on the climate, right? How fast we decarbonize. It depends on adaptation. The more we adapt places... The longer people can stay. Um, it depends on funds, right? If we make the world unlivable for people who are too poor to live there, they will need to move. Um, in terms of the 3 billion actually, by 2070, that's that is a model on the number of people who will be living outside of the human habitability niche by 2070, right? So That's an enormous number of people, again, and we do have a lot of adaptive capability. People do live in unlivable places already, but they normally live in small populations, places like Dubai, for example. That's a very, very heavily adapted place, and they live essentially inside a shopping center. It's air conditioned, it's sealed off from the outside. Everything they need is brought into them. It's a small population of wealthy people. They get their water, their food, their energy, everything comes from outside into them. And that, you know, we have many examples of that around the world where it works. But these large populations, you know, 50 50 million people in a city like Mumbai um, living in slums, you know, living in these tiny little concrete boxes with their corrugated iron roofs, they, they can't live like that. You know, they're already struggling now. They certainly won't be able to live like that in 2040 or 2050. No, they'll have to move. And and that, that population of Mumbai is still growing, right? Because of climate migrants from other rural areas where they're suffering flooding or drought or, or um, excessive heat and they can't survive there. So those populations are going to need to move. They, you know, the question is, will we let them? Will we help them? Um, the safer places to live are in the north. If you look at, um, I've got a graph in my book, actually, <laughs> a map, um, which I which I asked scientists at the UK Met Office in Exeter to, to um, help produce, which looks at multiple impacts of climate change by the end of the century. Um, I, I did one for four degrees and, and the, we've got one for two degrees as well. And it quite clearly shows this massive zone of unlivability across the tropics. And it extends, you know, up to the Great Lakes in America, all the way down to Patagonia, across, you know, uh, Asia, you know, up into Europe, you know, Southern Europe already, Mm. South, uh, Spain, Portugal, Greece, you know, they've already lost that Mediterranean climate. They're either on fire or they've got horrific drought or heat. Um... You know, down all the way through the continent of Africa, across um, across Asia, most of Australia. You know, these are very, very heavily populated nations. You know, on a small scale, you know, it's parts of it will be livable, some parts of the year. But we're generally talking about this huge area of unlivability. But then to the north of that, you know, are the Arctic, northern Canada, um, Siberia, Scandinavia. We're looking at areas which, you know, nowhere will escape the negative impacts of climate change, but these are areas that are better able to adapt. They won't experience as severe impacts, as extreme, as uh, frequent impacts. They're, they're able to adapt to what is coming. And that is where people will find safety. So we will need to expand the existing cities there. We, are, we will need to build entirely new cities. And when we talk about this migration, this movement of people, you know, people can picture, oh, you know, streams of desperate young men on boats. And there is this connotation built up by this incredibly toxic narrative driven by populist leaders um, of a threat, of this scary situation. It's We're not talking about that. We're talking about... You know, not just people, families, um, but capital, investment, agriculture, skills, expertise, industry. Everything will shift north. And that's a huge opportunity, actually, for those who are lucky enough to, you know, it'll be an upheaval for all of us because we will have to see these changes. These changes are coming anyway. You know, we're already going to see Flash floods on the streets that that, um, make some towns impossible. We're going to have internal migration anyway. We're going to see, um, you know, unbearable heat. We're going to have to adapt our buildings. School buildings will have to have air conditioning. You know, I had to take my kids out of school um, the year before last because it was just too hot. In their school. So we're gonna have to make these changes, but we also have to prepare and plan for these enlarged populations of people coming from other places, you know. And this is while we're also undergoing this huge upheaval to our energy systems. You know, we need to decarbonize everything.
0: It, it makes me think about the immigration question in a really different way. Uh, Because I think, look, people know displacement is coming. And like you say, it could be a couple of hundred million, it could be three billion, you know, a couple of hundred million is still obviously quite a lot. But the fact you're just taking that for granted, rightly so, and then talking in the kind of quite substantive technical detail was what really, you know, intrigued me. You talked about charter cities, for instance, you don't seem to support them, but it's one proposal that's out there. And you can see a world where, okay, um, the United States runs a major deficit. Um, obviously he has to support an aging population struggling military industrial complex you can see a center-right politician with a working brain say okay well look we're gonna start four or five major cities in Alaska you know you won't necessarily be citizens you have a right to work there for 20 years and then revisit it uh, you won't get pensions but you'll get whatever various benefits um, and that will allow us to fund our deficit for 20 years and like I thought, that's just an obvious if you even yeah, if you're being rationally to, self-interested, it makes perfect
1: sense. We need to move that conversation on, right? From where we're mired and stuck at the moment in this in this uh, ridiculous like non-starter of oh, you know, we're just gonna have no immigrants, we're gonna we're gonna push the boats back, we're gonna stop people coming, stop the boats. I mean, what, what is this nonsense, right? We need to get real. People are coming. How do we make that work?
0: So we can't stop so the boats <laughs> in your way?
1: We could stop the boats well, yeah. by providing safe routes for people to come who have a p- perfectly legitimate, you know, right of asylum here. We're talking about but right winger secret. would say
0: we could stop the boats. It would just be very violent.
1: Well, I don't think we actually could stop the boats if we didn't that, yeah. provide an alternative. People will come because their need to their need to try is, they, they don't have an alternative. They don't feel they have an alternative. They've already gone through enormous amounts of, of trauma. That, you know, and, and keeping people trapped in, in you know, hostels or, um, or centers or basically incarcerated in a, what is effectively a sort of prison is not the answer. Right. We're not getting the best socially or economically out of this, you know, young workforce, which it generally is. You know, these new members of our society, we're paying a fortune to keep them in this condition, building up resentment and cross-generational resentment because children who grow up in refugee camps, you know, are not you know, they don't feel themselves as um, members of that society that they want to support and, um, and, and feel patriotic about in any way, I can assure you. <laughs> so you know, we are building these long-term problems for ourselves when we could be much more pragmatic. We need to start being honest about what we face and having these discussions properly and having coming up with, you know, answers to them that actually make sense. You know, we we might not agree on all of them, but we have a demographic, we have a democratic, uh, we have these democratic tools to resolve what we do. Mm. And and, and living in denial is not, one of them whether it's about climate change about you know decarbonizing about migration about any of this it's not it's it's ridiculous mm. completely ridiculous it's
0: interesting, you talk about special e- economic zones again not in a particularly fond way but you know it's interesting you'd have you could offer something to the right say special economic zones but they're filled with people who are refugee you know that would be such a wonderful uh, puzzle for you know some people on the right look at Scotland so much land. Claims to be, you know, has progressive values, like you say, could build four or five major town cities in the highlands, um, could do all kinds of extraordinary things and fund all kinds of extraordinary things. And you're right to say that that's where the conversation goes. And, And finally, on this point, there is a lot of land, like so much. Greenland, Canada, Russia, I said Scotland, the Nordic countries, huge amounts of land. You know, Russia and Canada could easily take, Alaska could easily take hundreds of millions, like easily.
1: Yeah. Well, Canada, for example, I mean, is is planning on trebling its population over the coming decades. It has a much more progressive and, and that's very unusual now. But actually, you know, look back 50 years, that's exactly what we were all doing, right? We wanted to have these powerful, productive economies. And so we needed labor. So we were bringing people in. That's what the Windrush was about. You know, the fact that we then treated people these new members of our society like shit is neither here nor there. We wanted them in, right? Um, it's a, that, that actually makes a lot more sense than the current nationalistic policy of trying to keep people out when we actually need their labor, we need their taxes. You know, <laughs> that, that to me makes very little sense. Um, and I think it will change, it will have to change because reality will hit home soon, you know? That we actually need people, and then you know we could be coming up with strategies right now, long-term planning to make it work, because there are no simple solutions. And large numbers of people coming have the potential to, you know, um, increase the emergence of the far right as it is doing across across Europe, and that's really really frightening. You know, when we talk about um, the security threat that migrants pose. It's not the migrants that are the security threat right they they that is a labor issue and to some extent a humanitarian issue the security threat is internal it comes from the rise of white nationalists in the us the far right you know this these terrorist cells that's the problem and that needs addressing through smart policy because at the moment we have this very toxic anti-migrant narrative from our leaders, which is not being challenged with an effective, progressive, pragmatic, sensible narrative. And on top of that, we do not have the policies in place to make this feel like a fair transition. We have lots of left behind communities from post-industrialization who are living in in poverty they have no hope they have no opportunity and they see brown people coming into the cities not even where they live generally but into cities um, and they think oh they're getting nice homes they're getting new jobs they they're doing better than me and there is you know the policies are not in place to address these things
0: Final question, because you said about the anti-migrant rhetoric. I mean, that is undeniable. There's a massive rise of anti-migrant rhetoric across across the West. But it's let me put on some like a a hat. You know, I'm I'm now going to put my Nigel Farage hat. He would say, "Well, look, actually, um, Britain's 80% white. We do have large numbers of people from ethnic minority backgrounds. I don't know your heritage, you know, I'm half Iranian." And he would he would say, "Well, actually." If you said to Iran, 20% of your population should be white European, or if you went to China and you said 20% of your population should be from sub-Saharan Africa, they would say no. Actually, you might not like us. You might think we're demonizing immigrants, but actually we're the most open, diverse continent in the world. I mean, that's a fair point, isn't it, to an extent that you look at, and they also are afflicted by this issue with regards to demographic aging, China, South Korea, Japan, they refuse and this will be a problem going forward, of course, for them, they refuse to take people who who, who don't look like them. So is it, well, are you being a little bit unfair on the European right no, to an extent? No, that's changing. It's, it's much wider. That's changing. Okay, go on.
1: That's changing. So, yes, there are a number of very xenophobic countries. Um, perhaps, you know, Japan is one of the most xenophobic countries. It's, it's been easier uh, to, to gain citizenship. Um, as a robot than as a foreigner in Japan which is you know kind of remarkable and they went a long way down the robot route because they have got this huge problem with not having enough babies so you know they've got robot carers they they pioneered this whole kind of robot um, artificial workforce but even they have had to admit defeat and they've started loosening their immigration requirements for exactly this reason. Russia's exactly the same, massively xenophobic but one of the fastest depopulating nations on the planet. You know, it's they they are going to have to address it one way or another and Russia already is um has you know, this is even before it started sending all its young people off to get killed in the war, um it it was already loosening its requirements so not just from the former Soviet block, but from elsewhere, trying to bring people in, Um, especially in the East, you know, to to fill these these former Soviet cities that are completely depopulated. They've just got a few old people living there. It's a big problem. Um, So everyone's going to have to address this um, in various ways. And, you know, we are lucky in that Britain... With its very troubled past of doing this because of empire, because of its colonial um, history, is already it has already got very multicultural cities, and that's to its advantage. You know, we currently have a prime minister who's brown. We have a foreign secretary. I mean, It's hard to keep up with the big changes that constantly have. A, a foreign secretary who's brown. That's no, Cameron.
0: Have- now it's changed. You're right, but it was. They were brown. Yeah, Cameron's the foreign secretary, right?
1: Oh, who's James Cleverly then?
0: James Cleverly is now Home Secretary.
1: Home Secretary, right? We have the Home secretary. So, so yeah, I can't keep up. But the um, and the and the, you know, then then you know, we've had a preceding ones as well of all of all different colours, and and that's. Not even particularly remarkable, right? It's not even particularly remarkable. And that's great because what it means is that your identity as a Brit is not fundamentally first and foremost based on how much melanin you have in your skin. Like it is in some States in America, for example, or um, some towns in the Netherlands, right? It's, it's not based on that. And this is a journey we are all going to have to make as planetary citizens because people are moving.
0: Gaia, great place to end on. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much.
0: Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.